That is why Paul goes on to talk about this righteousness needed. From chapter 118 to 320, talks about sin. Talks about all have sinned, all the Gentiles have sinned, which is non-Jewish people. Chapter 2, the Jews who are religious have sinned. And then finally, he says all have sinned. And then, chapter 3 onwards, it talks about salvation, righteousness provided, how? And then after we are saved, we continue to need to grow in holiness. That's what sanctification means. To know and remember we are people set apart for God. And then chapter 9 to 11, he talks about how about the Israelites, those who are elect of God, what happens to them? And he talks about God's sovereignty. And then finally, uh, it's the application, how do we serve? So today from chapter 3, 9 to 20, which is the summary section of the section on sin, we'll first look what is the extent of sin, secondly, what is sin, the definition, and then finally, what is the remedy for sin. So the extent of sin, secondly, the definition of sin, and then the remedy for sin. Chapter 3, verse 9, he says, All have sinned. All, not just in numbers, but also in depth. Not just breath, but depth. What then? Are they better? Are we better than them? Paul says, are we the Jewish people, the religious people, better than the Gentiles who do not know God? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. So, the first part, he talks about the Gentiles, all have sinned. Last year, we actually preached from this passage twice. So now we jumped over it. But remember, there's a repeated phrase. It says, God gave them over to their lust, to their sin, to their immorality. Three times he repeated this. And we wonder, is it true these people, all these Gentiles, which are the Romans, are they really so bad? You know why Rome didn't like the early Christians? Now, firstly, it's because um, they didn't acknowledge Caesar as Lord. Right? They only have one Lord Jesus. Secondly, they didn't pray to all those pagan gods uh, that Rome had. And Rome had a lot. It was the basic fabric of their lives together. Worship of all these gods. And yet, for the Christians, they didn't do that. To an extent, you know, Rome looked at the early Christians and thought they were anti-religion. In fact, for a moment of time, they called them atheists. It's an irony, right? Christians are called atheists because they only believed in one God. But more so, it's because of their lives. Pellini, who was a general and then later became an author, he wrote to Emperor Trajan and he says, the Christians bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, never to commit any fraud, theft or adultery, never to falsify their word, not deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it. It's because of their lives. It showed their own depravity, and so they didn't like them. And so when Paul describes Rome, you know, sometimes we say, in Rome, do what the Romans do. Really? Now, whoever says that is wrong. Basically, it means compromise. You know, don't believe in anything, just go with the flow. And that is not biblical. But then what about Jewish people? What about the religious people? Paul didn't let them go, right? So in chapter 2, he talks about them. There's no partiality with God for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. You don't know God, you're judged by your conscience, and you will fail. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law, and they will perish. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. 
For when Gentiles who do not know have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves. It means they don't know God, but they live according to their conscience. And what happens is that they will also fail. It's just like if you hang your cell handphone before in front of you and you put on recording mode, and you record everything you do in life. At the end of your life, you hit replay. What will you see? Those who have no religion, who says that we live by my own standards, you realise even by that, you'll be inconsistent. You'll not live up to your own standards. And those who are religious will also not be able to live up to the standards of God. Now the question is, which is worse? See, Paul continues, he says, right? But if you bear the name Jew, rely upon the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed of the law, you know the law, you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking of the law, do you dishonour God? This is basically, if you follow the law, you fall short of it, you're equally as bad. It's just like this man who was a miser. And he was going to die, and he was worried that nobody would come for his funeral. So he came up with this plan. He called his neighbour, his doctor, and his pastor. He gave each of them an envelope. In the envelope, there was $30,000. And he said, we are always told that we cannot take money with us when we go, but I want to prove that we can. So when I'm dead, I want you to come for my burial and throw this envelope of money into the coffin so that they'll be buried with me and can take it with me. Now they agreed, okay? A few days later, he died. So his burial, they came, they threw the envelope of money in and then they left. But as they were leaving, you know, his neighbour looked a bit concerned and then the neighbour said, I have a confession. You know, I have some financial needs. So I took out $10,000. I only threw in twenty. Now, then the doctor says, well, since you're at this, I have to confess. We're trying to build the hospital. So I took out 20000 and only threw in ten. And the pastor was aghast. He says, how can you do that? That man trusted us. I threw the whole sum in on my personal check. Now, let me ask you, who is more unrighteous? They're all equally unrighteous, especially the one who thought he can justify himself, right? And this is exactly what Paul is saying. He's, Romans 1, he says, you know what? The Gentiles, they have sinned, we know. They live immorally, we know. But how about the religious? We're just as bad. Hence, in chapter 3, 9, which is the beginning of his summary, he says, what then should we say? All have sinned. Friends, when we have a shallow view of sin, we think sin is what we do, our external behaviours, and so we go into behaviour modification. I just need to control what I do. So, if I avoid certain crowds, if I avoid certain places, I don't drink, I don't smoke, if I dress myself and cover myself all over, dress conservatively, if I don't eat certain things, I will be holy. That is a shallow view of sin. We don't understand the extent of sin. The Bible tells us all, not just all, but its problem is sin cuts right through the human heart. Even those with religion, they have sinned. What is the extent of sin is all have fallen short of the glory of God. And that's how we understand the extent of sin. Hence, Tim Keller, he says, the theologically correct view of sin 
sees it as a compulsive drive of the heart to produce idols. Sin drives through the human heart. That means it's not just you doing bad things. Even the good things that you do becomes idol. Your family, your jobs, when they become the most important thing in our lives, taking the place of God, when that gives us our sense of justification and righteousness, those are idols. That is sin. That turns us away from God. Hence, it's our damnable good works that's the problem. Whether you're religious, not religious, Scripture says all have sinned. And so what is the definition of sin? Paul would go on to quote a series of Old Testament verses to say that sin is really turning from God to self, to self-centeredness. Since as it is written, then he quotes this whole series of Old Testament verses, there's none righteous, not even one, there's none who understands, there's none who seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become useless, there is none who does good, not even one. We say, really, man? Really, no one? Right? When he quotes from different parts of the Old Testament, it's, it's telling us that even in the Old Testament, it is clear, not, and no one seeks after God. There's not one righteous. Why? Well, firstly, in the Greek, the word for sin is hamatia, which means miss the mark. You know, you shoot an arrow and you miss, miss the bullseye. Now, this bullseye is God's perfection saying there's no one perfect, no one can hit God's mark. So we fall short and hence, who is perfect? Nobody. Therefore, all the world has fallen into sin. But the Jewish mindset has a more holistic view of sin. It's not just missing the mark. The scripture that we read is turning away from God, not seeking God, turning towards the self. There's why Augustine, when he became a Christian and he became a theologian, he kept reflecting of something that happened when he was 16 years old. Basically, he and a group of friends went to steal their neighbor's pear tree. They stole the pear from the tree. And he kept thinking, why did I do that? I wasn't hungry. I didn't need to eat it. The pear didn't look so good. And so he concluded, the reason I ate it was because of this perverse sense of freedom. I wanted to show that I could be free like God and do whatever I want. And he said, a duck imitation of the omniscient. Meaning he's saying that I want to be like God and do whatever I want. Does that sound familiar? It should. When Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? The serpent says, if you eat from this tree, you will be like God. Means we will take the place of God. And so Augustine came up with this phrase, homo in cavatus in se. The inward curvature of the soul, the human inward curvature of our soul, meaning we are naturally inward curving. We are self-centered. We don't believe in God. We want to be God, meaning we want to get to decide what's right and wrong. We want to have the freedom to do whatever we want. We are religious, but you know what? We are still self-centered. We seek God for His benefits and blessings and gifts, not for God Himself. We think we can manipulate God if we do certain rituals, if we have certain, do certain things to get what we want. And so you look at the scripture, it says, none seeks for God. It doesn't say, none seeks for God for blessing. None seeks for God for, for good things or gifts. It says, none seek 
for God Himself. So whether we're religious or not, friends, we are still self-centered. That's the extent of sin. Sin is not just behavior, what we do on the outside. It's cut right through our hearts. The question is, why is this so bad, being self-centered, this inward curvature of our soul? Why is it so bad? Because it strikes at the very heart of who God is. Remember the catechism, the first, my favorite, right? What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but we belong to Christ. When we belong to Christ, we do not need to strive for our own value, to prove our worthiness. Naturally, the second question, if we belong to God, then what is God? God is the creator of everyone and everything. You want happiness and purpose in life? We need to understand, go know our creator and understand why we are created for. And the third question we ask today is, there are three, how many persons are there in God? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. The word Trinity doesn't appear in the Bible, but the concept is clear. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, when it says we worship the one God, you know the one, the word one? Uh, in Hebrew, there are two words. One is Yayit, which is just one. The other is Ekhat, which is collective one. Hmm? It's like one apple and one basket of apple. They're all one, but one is collective, right? So, in Old Testament, when it talks about one God, it uses the collective word, which means it gives a hint that you no know, God is a bit more complicated. And then in a different scripture, we see God the Father, we see God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and as scripture unfolds, it becomes clear. Now, why is this important? If you went for our journey onward last week, we talked about theological reflection. How do we grow deeper? Because all of us have a theology. Theology affects our worldview. Out of this worldview, we make choices. So theology is highly relevant. Even if you don't believe in God, you have a theology. It's just whether you're aware or not. So as Christians, we want a biblical worldview, which means our worldview is shaped by Scripture, shaped by theology. So we keep asking the question, what does this mean? How is this relevant? You find an answer, you ask again to go deeper. You ask a few times, what does this mean? How is it relevant? We are reflecting theologically. and As you grow deeper, we get a better understanding. Why is this important? The pastor's voice, I explained this Trinity concept, right? If God is not Trinity, then God is not love. Because true love, you need someone to love. If God is monopersonal, then before creation, you can't say that God is love. And we believe that God is unchanging, then He cannot suddenly, He creates and He becomes love. More importantly, God is communal. Three persons. When God is three persons, when we turn away from others, when we turn away from God, that is attacking the very nature of who God is. So sin is inward curving. Sin is self-centeredness. We turn away from people, our relationship is broken. We turn away from God, our relationship is broken. And that is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve hid from God. They hid from one another. Brokenness in human relationship, brokenness with relationship with our Creator. And that is why Jesus, when He summarized the law, when He was asked, how do you summarize, what did He say? Love God. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You reconcile these two relationships, the vertical and the horizontal one. So the inward curvature of our soul, this very definition of sin. We turn away from God to self. 
C.S. Lewis says, there's nothing more miserable than self-centeredness. There's nothing more enslaving than self-centeredness. Why? Because if what we need is the acceptance and love of another, turning ourselves away, deprive ourselves of that love and acceptance, and hence we grow more miserable. Why is it enslaving? Because every time we act out of self-centeredness, we leave an imprint in our soul to make the next time easier. We put ourselves first. And as a result, you know, we, sometimes we feel life is unfair. We go around being grumpy. I, should, I deserve that promotion. Why didn't I get this? My boss is unfair. God is unfair. And then we have a sense of disdain because I deserve it. I'm better than you. We have a sense of superiority because of our, of our ethnicity, our race, our religion. I am better than you. But then I don't get it, so I get bitter. It's harder for me to forgive. I hold to this bitterness. So that's the problem with self-centeredness. What is the extent of sin? We say all have sinned. It's not just the breadth, but the depth. And the definition of sin is us turning away from God, turning to our self. Paul continues, he says, the throat is an open grave with the tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of the apps is under the lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Notice he described different body parts. Show how comprehensive sin is. And from just words, eventually becomes action. And when we don't turn from our sin, it grows on us and eventually it comes out in our lives. It's just, not just doing the bad things. It is when we put ourselves first all the time. And why do they do that? Destruction and misery are their paths, the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Conclusion is because they don't fear God. You know, Woody Allen is a well-known director. He was nominated for 14 Oscar Awards and he won four of them. When he was in the 60s, he divorced his wife of 10 years and he married her stepdaughter. See, this wife, Mia Farrow, she actually adopted a little girl from South Korea. When she married Woody, married Woody Allen, the girl was about 10 years old. Okay? One day she found that Woody Allen had a new picture of the daughter. By this time, she was about 18 or 19. So she confronted him and he admitted, you know, that he had sexual relations with her. So she walked out of the marriage and eventually he, he married this young girl. When he was asked why he did that, he says the heart wants what it wants, there's nothing to do about it. You know, in the 90s, that was a scandal. Today, this is accepted, isn't it? Be your authentic self. Live for how you feel. If your heart wants it, what it wants, you have no choice, just be authentic. But is that biblical? Is that correct? Is it true we need to live out however we feel? Scripture says, deny yourself, follow Christ. It doesn't mean suppress your feelings. It means allow the gospel to transform how you feel. We don't feel right all the time. We don't feel biblical all the time. We don't do the right actions all the time. But it is the, the gospel, the love of God that transforms us, that draws us toward what is right. And sometimes we have to act when we don't feel right because what we feel is wrong, is, is sinful. But yet we choose not to sin. Why? The reason is because there's no fear of God. You know, before the mid-20th century, the prevalent belief, especially in the Western world, is that morality is based on the eternal law of God, unchanging law of God. But ever since, culture has shifted. 
Now morality is really based on our feelings, subjective feelings. Whoever speaks louder, whoever sounds more correct. Because they have no fear of God, this is what happens. And so what is the remedy then? If we understand the extent of sin is we are thoroughly depraved, then friends, the remedy is not behavior modification. The remedy is the gospel. We cannot justify ourselves, therefore we need to turn to Jesus. Paul says, comes to the conclusion of section 1, which is on sin, right? All have sinned, Jews have sinned, Gentiles have sinned, all have sinned, and he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may be, become accountable to God. We all stand accountable to God and because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law shows us the nature of God. And because of that, we know we have fallen. We, we cannot meet the standards. No one has any excuse when we stand before God. And it says, no flesh will be justified. You know the word justified and righteous, they are the same a Greek word. Which means righteousness is really needing someone to justify us, either someone or ourselves. So last week I, I said, what is righteousness? It's like a report card, right? We have to show and validate our worth to prove that I'm worth loving, um, there's a purpose to my existence. For example, Sidney Pollock, another well-known director, he worked really hard even after retirement, even until he died, you know. His family asked him to slow down and he says, I cannot because um, every time I finish a picture, I feel I've earned my stay for another year or so. Everybody needs to feel that they are doing something that justifies their being here. He says, my work justifies me. I feel I need to earn my stay. Here's how I get a sense of validity and acceptability. I make movies. Another person, Harold Abrahams, I shared him, about him before. He ran in the 1924 Olympics, the 100 meters. You know, the one that Eric Liddell didn't want to run because the heat was held on Sabbath. And Liddell ran the 400 meters, broke the world record. But his teammate, Harold Abrahams, ran the 100 meters and won the gold medal. And he was asked, why do you train so hard? He said, when the gun goes off, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? Now, it's not Hussein Bolt. Hussein Bolt is at 9.58 seconds, right? He says, 10 lonely seconds. Why? To justify that I'm, I'm worth to, to exist. You know, sometimes we do that through our jobs, our families, children. That's why when our children don't behave or they don't get the good results, we get extremely upset or disappointed or sad because that's how we justify my existence. From our jobs, we do that. So when people steal our credit, we don't get the promotion or that, that project. It affects our self-worth because we're trying to justify ourselves. Ultimately, Scripture tells us only Christ can justify us. We have to turn to Him away from yourself towards Christ. So Scripture says no one seeks after God, right? But God seeks after us. Ezekiel 34 in the Old Testament, God says, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. God comes seeking for us. Christ says, Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus came to earth to seek for us. You know, why is there so many religions in the world? 
is because people are trying to find this answer. You don't see animals sitting before a tree and just thinking, you know, hmm, what's the purpose of my existence, right? Because they don't have soul, but we have. But many people try to seek for God, and so in all these different ways, but God comes to seek for us. That is why He tells us, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish by eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. God sent His Son. So the gospel is God sending His Son for us. Sin is man taking God's place, which He deserved. Salvation is God taking our place, which we deserve, which is on the cross. That is where each and every one of us deserves to be. But Christ took our place, and that's the gospel. We are living out the gospel is not behavior modification. Jesus came to give us a new heart. Just like this businessman, he brought a prospective buyer to buy his warehouse. But when they got there, he realized oh, the door has been broken down, all the glass windows have been shattered, you know, there's a lot of paintings on the wall. And so he kept assuring his buyer, he said, don't worry, don't worry, I'll repair all this thing, give you a fresh coat of paint. And as he was talking, the buyer says, stop, I don't need you to do that because I'm not interested in the building. I just want the site. I'll tear down the building and build a brand new one. And that is exactly what Jesus did when He came to our lives. Not to renovate our hearts, but to give us a new heart. But friends, the gospel is not something we need just the day we accepted Christ. It's something we need every day. To renew our relationship with Him. To hold on to Him. To, to allow the, the love and, God, and grace of God to change, grip our hearts and to transform our hearts. And in this process, we build ourselves up in the faith. Right, Jude says, build yourself up in the faith. Grow in your relationship. So this year, you know, instead of just, um, we, we, we learn to memorize the New City Catechism, to reflect on it, to understand how is it relevant, but can also come for this, the Christian Education Series, right? We have Journey Onward, uh, the Christian Education Series, the different things that are lined up. I encourage you to, to take part, to understand your faith more, the different aspects of faith. Uh, in May and April, it talks about angels, demons, and cosmic conflicts. And then September, talks about Baptist distinctives. Why are we Baptists? Then we have this intergenerational conversation. So these are things lined up for this year. Apart from that, in our daily lives, to come before God to, to renew our relationship with Him. We cannot justify ourselves, so we turn away from ourselves to God. So I shared with you, right, this year, my resolution is just to wake up earliest in the morning, uh, to read scripture, to pray, to sing songs of worship. And I can tell you, nothing magical happens. Most of the time, I'm trying not to sleep because I'm so tired. You know, but as the day goes by, every day I, I set, come before God, it's just like coming for worship, gathering your DG. It's, it has a sanctifying effect. End of last year, I said, you know, I find it so difficult to come back to church. But thankfully, you know, right now, I, the, I don't feel that strongly because I know that the more I don't want to come, actually, this is the place to come. For some of us who have not come back to church, it's time to come back to your home. When you have no words to sing, you listen to the singing of the person beside you, even though it may be out of tune. When you find that you cannot pray, you listen to the prayers of the people around you. We need to come back. In corporate worship, in DG, in our devotion times, that is to consecrate ourselves, present ourselves before God. 
to hold on to His hands as we walk through the valley of shadow of death. The grace of the gospel transforms our hearts. We cannot justify ourselves. We need to turn to Christ. Don Quixote is a story, a book. It's probably one of the most important uh, works of literature in the Western world. It's the first so-called novel. All right? It's about this person, Don Quixote. He was a madman. So he went to travel the world to save the world. And then he thought he was a knight. So a knight needs a lady, right? And he met this, this prostitute. And he treated her like a princess. At first she was amused. Then she was upset. She said, are you trying to make fun of me? And then finally, she was transformed. And the narrative of the story is that it takes a madman to recognize royalty in a prostitute. If that is so, then I would say Jesus is the, is the ultimate madman because in our brokenness, He sees our beauty and royalty and loved us and died for us. But in the story, someone asks Don Quixote, why are you so mad? He says, you think I'm mad, but the matters of all is to see the world as it is and not as it should be. What is he saying? He says, you see all this brokenness and you accept it, do nothing about it, you have no hope. You are madder than me. You think this prostitute is broken? I see her as a princess. I'm not mad. You are the mad one. You know, if we see this world as brokenness, the sins, the disease, the death, the wars, the climate change, we feel hopeless. We have no hope. We're saying you are the maddest of all. Because the world as it is, is not as it should be. God didn't create the world this way. Sin came into the world. But God has a plan to redeem the world. And that desire in our hearts that one day, there'll be no more tears, no more death, no more disease. Friends, that is an echo of Eden that we have lost. But more importantly, it's a hint of heaven that is to come because of Jesus. And in our walk, with daily walk with Christ, we not only get a glimpse of it, we get a glimpse of it in our lives today. Which means, in darkness, we can still have light. In tears, we can still have comfort. In brokenness, we can still have healing. Hold on. Hold on to Christ. And you'll realize that He has been holding on to you. Let us pray. So we ex realize the extent of sin. We realize we're all sinners, religious or not. And we need Jesus. Not just the moment when we turn and place our faith in Him, but every day of our lives to understand we walk by faith because of the grace of God, because of what Jesus has done. So I want us to come before the Lord and just renew ourselves. Renew our relationship with Him. Ask Him to teach us more about Him every day. And remember, growing your faith is not just for ourselves. There's an outworking, outflow. How can we be witnesses to others? Who can you invite to your house this Chinese New Year to have a meal, to open your hearts, open your doors? We see the people as they are and we say we don't like them. But matters of all are those who see the world as it is and not as it should be. Come before the Lord. 
Talk to him in prayer. Church, let's stand. Sing, sing a song in response.